This is Satan's strategy. If he can't keep a person entirely away from Christianity, he gives them a false dose so that they're inoculated against the truth. And they read their Bible and they do things Christians do, and they've never bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's his strategy. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. On any battlefield, it helps to know what your enemy plans to do. What about Satan, our common enemy? Do you know his ultimate objective and his strategies? Well, hello again. I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom is continuing our current series with part six of Learning to Use God's Armor. Through our study in Ephesians 6 so far, Tom has examined how Satan's greatest strategy against believers is lying and deception. Simply put, Satan wants to deceive you. But as you'll learn today, his primary objective for unbelievers is to blind them to God's great plan of salvation. How does Satan accomplish that goal, and why is it essential for you to enter into combat? Keep those questions in mind, and let's join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. They think they have power over supernatural beings. Instead, verse 9, even Michael, the archangel, the most powerful holy being in the universe next to God, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, this is the only place we're told about this, Apparently, this happened when, you remember, Moses died and was privately buried, and apparently Satan somehow wanted his body, maybe to make it an object of worship, to make it idolatry for the children of Israel. We're really not told. Even Michael, when they disputed about this, did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things they do not understand, They don't even know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're involved in. Peter says the same thing over in 2 Peter 2, verse 11. Again, in verse 10, he describes these false teachers as reviling angelic majesties. Hey, listen, mark it in your book that whenever you find somebody who's taking on supernatural beings, you have a false teacher. Twice. We're told they're the ones who revile angelic majesties, who take it on themselves to do that. Whereas, verse 11, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. This is all patently unbiblical. What Ephesians 6 is calling on us to do is not to attack Satan, not to go on the offensive against him, not to bind him, but to stand firm against his attacks, to withstand his attacks against us. That's the spirit in which you and I are called to battle. We're to hold the ground that our Lord himself has claimed. We're to stand firm, not in our own strength, but in his strength. So what exactly are we to put up a firm defense against? What are we to stand firm against? Look at verse 11 again. You may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The key word here obviously is schemes. You may have 
grown up, if you grew up in the church, hearing the King James translation of that word, which is wiles. The Greek word is a word you'll recognize. It really comes straight out of Greek into English. It's the word methodeia, from which we get the English word method. It's used only two times in the Bible, back in chapter 4, verse 14, where it refers to the schemes of false teachers, false teaching, and here of Satan. The word originally meant a process or a procedure for doing something, a method. But eventually in Greek, it primarily took on the bad sense of deceptive, cunning, crafty methods or schemes. In light of the military image that sort of permeates this whole passage, I think Paul may want us to translate it something like strategies. Maybe a good word. Tactics. Strategies. Notice the noun schemes is plural. That means both that they're constantly repeated. He keeps attacking. He keeps looking for soft places in the line. And I think it speaks of a variety of schemes, a variety of strategies. He doesn't just have one way to attack us. He has countless ways to attack us. And we need to know what they are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that he acts in such a way so that no advantage is taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Different word, but same idea. We're not ignorant of his schemes. Tragically, I think most Christians today are absolutely ignorant of his schemes. They have no idea what Satan's strategies against them really are. They are merely cannon fodder in the war between God and Satan. Listen, Satan is very cunning, and as we will see, he has many different strategies he uses. But back of all of that variety, if we could sort of boil down every method he uses, every tactic, every strategy into a common source. Behind it all, the unifying method is deception. This has been his basic method from the beginning. Jesus said he is a liar and the father of all liars. That's what he does. He lies, he deceives. He did this in the very beginning. In fact, look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is concerned about the Corinthians, and he points back to Eve, and he says, this is what happened in the garden. 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the servant, serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be deceived and led astray by the, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He says, I'm concerned that you are going to be deceived just like Eve was deceived. This is how it always works. This is what underlies his approach. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, he's called the one who deceives the whole world. This is who he is. So clearly, back of the innumerable strategies and tactics he develops is this one unifying method. Lying and deception. Do you understand this? Satan wants to deceive you. Rarely does Satan come with a frontal attack where it's clear what's going on. It's always, as 
Stonewall Jackson said, to mystify, to mislead, and to surprise. That's his tactic. It's never or hardly ever a front-on attack. In the rest of our time together this morning, I want us just to begin to identify Satan's primary schemes or devices or strategies, tactics. I want to start with Satan's strategies or tactics toward unbelievers. Toward unbelievers. Paul tells us that Satan's primary objective for unbelievers, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, is to blind their minds to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his primary objective. 2 Corinthians 4.4. To blind the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now how does he do that? How does Satan blind people to God's great plan to salvation? Well, the New Testament seems to emphasize several strategies he uses with unbelievers. And I looked at these in detail when we were back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. So I'm not going to do that here. If you want to study these in a little more detail, you can go back and listen to the message on Ephesians 2, 2. But let me just briefly remind you of them here. Number one, here's his strategies, primary strategies toward unbelievers. Number one, he promotes human philosophy and ideology. He promotes human philosophy and ideology. There are a number of passages we covered when I went through this before, but just look at Colossians 2, verse 8. Paul is concerned about the Colossians. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. He says, listen, there are ideas and philosophies that are out there, and Satan, even you as believers, would love to entrap you in this. This is his scheme to get unbelievers, but he'd love to snag you up in it as well. We saw in 2 Corinthians 10 last week that Satan has created these speculations and lofty ideas raised against the knowledge of Christ. Our world is dominated by philosophies. Ideas and philosophies like Evolutionary naturalism, postmodernism, anti supernaturalism, feminism, radical environmentalism, and a whole lot of other isms. All anti God, anti biblical ideologies are spawned and promoted by Satan himself to blind people to the glory of Christ. I mean, think about it. Sinners today can actually feel pretty good about themselves if they recycle their trash. It's the gospel of today. I'm a good person if I reduce my carbon footprint. Where did that come from? It came from Satan himself to blind the minds of people to their true condition and to the glory of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, with unbelievers, he promotes false religion. Not just ideologies and philosophies. Secondly, false religion. This, I think, is Satan's greatest strategy with unbelievers. He promotes damning false religion. The Old Testament is permeated by the worship of false gods. And in both Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 106, we're told by the writers of Scripture that behind every one of those idols was a demon. 
The same is true in the New Testament, and the same is true today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, that the idols, that when people worship idols, they are in fact worshiping demons. And when Satan eventually in the future has full sway over this world, what does he do? He sets up a great false religious system under the Antichrist and the false prophet. Read 2 Thessalonians 2. Read the book of Revelation. Satan promotes false religion of every kind, from moralism to pagan idolatry, from the millions of gods of Hinduism to the environmentalist worship of Mother Earth. Apart from the worship of the true God revealed in the pages of Scripture, listen closely, there is not a single religion that is not energized by Satan and his demons. That's what the Old and the New Testament teach. Religion is not a seeking of God. It is a desertion of the true God and what He has revealed about Himself. And it is promoted by and scripted by and empowered by Satan himself. Number three, he prevents the spread of the true gospel. Here's another tactic with unbelievers. He prevents the spread of the true gospel. First of all, he does it individually, in individual hearts. Fascinating passage in Matthew 13, where Jesus presents what's called the parable of the soils. One of those soils, you remember, is like a path that people have walked on again and again. It's a heart that's hard, and the seed of the gospel falls on that ground, and you remember, it can't get through, it can't pierce. And Jesus said, the birds of the air come and snatch that seed away. Later, when he explained it to his apostles, he said, this is what I meant. I meant that when that hard heart has the gospel fall on it, they read the Bible and see the gospel, they hear it, you communicate it, maybe an unsaved family member or friend, or they sit in a service like this one and they hear something true, it doesn't penetrate. And then Satan finds a way, usually through circumstances that happen during the service, after the service, after they finish, put the Bible down, he finds a way to snatch that out of their minds so that they never think deeply about it. Not only does he do it individually, he does it locally and regionally and nationally and internationally. He obstructs world missions. Paul mentioned this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Listen, Satan does anything he can, whether it's through corrupt politicians, evil governments, corrupt customs officials, anything he can do, he will try to obstruct the spread of the gospel through world missions. This is his mission. Number four, he produces false believers. This is a brilliant strategy. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the tares. You remember? There's real wheat, and then there are tares that look like wheat. And somebody comes along, and here's this field of real wheat growing, and at night somebody comes along and sows tares in it. And the tares grow up, and for a long time they look like the real thing. They look like wheat. This is Jesus' description of unbelievers who profess Christ growing up alongside true believers in the context of the church and other environments. Why does that happen? 
Listen to Jesus' explanation. In Matthew 13, he says, the enemy, Satan, has done this. This is Satan's strategy. If he can't keep a person entirely away from Christianity, he gives them a false dose so that they're inoculated against the true. And they read their Bible, and they do things Christians do, and they've never bowed their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's his strategy. Those are the primary ways Satan keeps people spiritually blind. But Ephesians 6 isn't really about his strategy with unbelievers. It's about his strategy with believers. One strategy of Satan is he accuses us to our own consciences and to God. He accuses us to our own consciences and to God. Here is, I think, one of Satan's greatest devices. And it's hinted at, implied here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Notice the word devil. The Greek word is diabolos. It means slanderer. He is by nature a slanderer. He accuses, he slanders, he attacks. He accuses us to our own hearts, doesn't he? If you're a Christian, you've experienced this. You know what this looks like. He wants to discourage us. He wants us to stay away from God. And so Satan has two different lies, one before we sin and one after we sin. Before we sin, he says, oh, listen, that's not really that big a deal. It's okay. God won't mind too much, and you'll enjoy it. It's not a big deal. And then after you sin, what does he say? Oh, how could you profess Christ and do that? Listen, God doesn't want to see you. Don't even think about going to God and seeking his forgiveness. David felt that, didn't he? In Psalm 32, he describes for those nine months, he stayed distant from God after he committed that horrible sin, and he felt the heavy weight of his sin, but still he wouldn't go. It reminds me of the second verse of the song we sing often before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. If you're a Christian, you know what that is. You've sensed that. You've experienced that. The song goes on. Upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. So Satan accuses us to our own hearts, often with a great measure of success. But Satan, even, are you ready for this? Accuses us before God. You realize that? Satan accuses you and me before God. Look back. I won't have you turn there. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Describes Satan as the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. Did you hear that? He accuses them before God day and night. Say, what does that look like? Turn back just for a moment to Job chapter 1. Here's what it looks like. And I wish I had time. I'd planned to go through this passage in a little more detail with you, but my time is gone. Let me just point out a couple of verses. Job chapter 1, verse 8. Satan shows up before the throne of God. Apparently a very routine thing that he does. God allows him to come. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered Job? 
There's no one like him on the earth. Nobody else like him. And so how does Satan respond? Watch this. Verse nine, Satan answered the Lord, of course. Look at what you've done for him. Does he fear you for nothing? He doesn't really love you and fear you. It's all about what he gets from you. And this man was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And Satan's accusing him before God. Do you think you escaped that? Verse 5 of chapter 2. He comes back to the same thing. Verse 4. You know, at first he's able to attack him on a variety of fronts, but not on his body. And he comes back in verse 4. He says, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. He doesn't love you. He loves all the stuff you give him. Satan accuses us before God. Second to the last book in the Old Testament, Zechariah. One more passage. Actually, two more. I lied. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah has the series of visions. In the fourth one. He sees Joshua, verse 1 of chapter 3, the high priest. This is the high priest who came back under Zerubbabel, came back out of Babylonian captivity, and he sees him standing before the angel of the Lord. That's before Christ. So here's like a courtroom scene. Christ is on the throne, and this, this man, Joshua, standing there, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Here's a picture of a man in sin who deserves to be accused before God, and God clothes him in his own righteousness. But Satan was there to accuse. Here's the good news. Here's one tactic of Satan that will never succeed. He will never be able to accuse you before God successfully. One last passage, Romans chapter 8. This is the point Paul makes here. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things, to God's great eternal plan of redemption in your life? What shall we say? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Now watch verse 33. Who can successfully, is the idea, bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who declares you righteous. Who is the one who can condemn you? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. He is our heavenly advocate. And whatever accusations Satan may bring, however true they may be, and they probably are, they will never succeed before God because our advocate stands on our behalf and pleads our case. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of Learning to Use God's Armor. Join us next time for part seven as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, Tom, it can be hard to fathom the supreme encouragement in how Christ Jesus stands as an advocate for his children against the accusations of Satan. Isn't that true? It is such a freeing, such a remarkable truth. You know, I think that's why the Apostle John, when he wants to encourage true believers in their battle with sin, reminds us that we're not supposed to sin. But when we do sin, we have our Lord Jesus as our advocate. So we're not free to sin at will and to take advantage of this. Rather, we are free from the eternal punishment for sin. But when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He speaks on our behalf. He defends us against Satan's accusations. And he reminds the Father that we are the Father's children and that Jesus himself paid the penalty for those very sins that we're coming now to seek forgiveness for. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.